the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Sweet, sweet quarantine, dear people of the internet. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and I think we're all a little surprised at just how quickly things can turn. And like me, I think many of us were letting the coronavirus fear porn beat off of us like water on a duck's back. But as more states and countries issue orders of safe distancing, self-quarantine, and shelter in place, I'm starting to worry much more about the very Orwellian actions being implemented, how quickly we fall in line without any pushback, and how often we're going to allow freedoms to be subverted under the very worn-out reasoning that this is all for our safety. While there is no shortage of commentary or speculation when it comes to the coronavirus, its origins, or its purpose, but some of the most interesting material I've been following suggests that we really need to rethink our assumption that deadly, contagious viruses emerge randomly throughout the human timeline, wiping out huge numbers of us in their wake. Because when you dig deeper into many of the major disease waves, like polio, West Nile, HIV-AIDS, SARS, Mad Cow, and more... We can often find alternative causes for large numbers of people getting sick in their time and place, usually due to the widespread use of some corporate toxic chemical or the rollout of inaccurate tests that overinflate the numbers and contribute to widespread panic. It's a fairly extreme perspective, but you come to THC for the extremes and the educated researchers who can make the best case for them, and today we have just such a guy. His name is David Crow, and by trade, he is a telecommunications consultant from Alberta, Canada, but he's also an environmentalist, writer, and strong critic of science and medicine. He started by looking at HIV-AIDS, and even founded the Alberta Reappraising AIDS Society, where he was appointed to president in 2008. He was also the co-host and co-founder of the How Positive Are You podcast, a weekly podcast of surprising news and views on HIV and AIDS, which ran until 2017, and still has archives available for anyone interested. But he's also the man behind the Infectious Myth podcast, which looks at the wider scope of infectious disease, the prevailing scientific theories on them, and the aspects they don't really want you to know. Well, coronavirus is certainly keeping him busy, and I'm psyched to have him here today. The contagiousness critic and the infectiousness educator and a sober voice in these troubled times. David, welcome to the higher side. Thank you, and I hope some of the information that I have is contagious, (laughs) even though the virus we'll see is not. One small correction, I I founded the Alberta Reprising AIDS Society in 1999, and I was appointed president of Rethinking AIDS, which is an international organization of skeptics of the HIV theory in 2008. Oh, so fair. It's easy to get those things. It's okay. (laughs) There's a few things in in my bio for sure. Well, it is rare for me to mess up a bio, but we are moving quite quickly in the last few days. So, uh, that is an understatement. (laughs) Like, from when I first wrote my first paragraph on oh my God, this is SARS all over again. And and this has got so much bigger than SARS and so much more out of control. Um, and for reasons that have nothing to do with a, a virus that have all to do with human things, uh, pieces of paper where people write things on them and 
make rules and people follow those rules and the number of, of cases you get depends on which rules you're following. Yes, well said. And of course, we're going to unpack all this. And thanks so much for taking the time. I'm sure you're in high demand. I find you to be a reasonable database guy. And I've been very impressed with your presentation from a few years ago called Rethink All Viruses, still on YouTube for the time being. <laughs> and also your coverage on the coronavirus that's been on the podcast and in your available PDF. To me, when we talk about medical topics and alternative advice, I get really nervous because the stakes are so high. I would never want to lead someone astray or give them bad information that puts them in harm's way. This is clearly not a time to promote alternative theories just because we're stubborn and spiteful of the system. So I do take that responsibility pretty seriously, and I'm sure you do too. And to break the ice, I guess... Tell the people a little bit about how you became such a skeptic of infectious disease in general, if you could. I think there's multiple threads. <clears throat> when I graduated in science with a, a bachelor's degree, um, I, was, I was a lot more interested in, in sort of the theor theoretical aspects of um, science than other people. And I was studying an area of um, science called taxonomy, the relationships between plants. You might equate it to the evolution of, of plants or animals. And in, in fact, my bachelor's thesis was published in a peer-reviewed journal on this subject. The quantum of taxonomy is the species. And I became very interested in the fact that you cannot define a species. There are distinct species that can interbreed at times. And in fact, that's what I was studying in, in university. There are things like the lichens, which are algae and fungi that live symbiotically but act as if they were a single species. So here you have the fundamental unit of an important area of biology that is not uh, definable. I mean, it's not useless, but you cannot come up with a precise definition. If you want to define a species for a lichen or a fox or for a daisy, then the definition is going to be slightly different, which is a bit of a shock for people who like their science in nice, neat boxes like most scientists. Um, so anyway, I was I went on to a career in, in computer programming and telecommunications and things like that, but kept an interest in environmentalism and um, science. And when I heard about AIDS, I just accepted everything. Um, but in the early 1990s, I started, I, I accidentally heard a radio program that was my first indication that there were scientists who disagreed that HIV was the cause of AIDS. Uh, people like uh, Dr. Peter Duesberg, a professor of molecular biology at, uh, at Berkeley, still there, still doing research, but not in HIV because he can't get money or publications. And so I gradually got more and more into this. And by the end of the 1990s, I had come across the work of the so-called Perth Group from Australia, and they had questioned the existence of HIV. And I thought to myself, why don't I do that for another virus? So West Nile virus came along in 1999, and I wrote a paper around the year 2000 saying, does it exist? And I was shocked by what virologists were calling isolation. Isolation should mean we separated the virus from everything else. Well, they basically, you know, grind up the brain of a crow or something, and they, they filter it to get rid of the lumps, and then they add that material to a cell culture, and then if they see cells dying, they say, we've isolated a virus. Clearly not isolation, clearly not purification. Um, and as time went on, I, I decided I needed to write a book um, 
called the infectious myth, talking about these infectious diseases that have other explanations for why people are getting sick and dying that are, are not infectious explanations. Or maybe the explanation is infectious. If you read the book, you'll get so excited, but it's, it's not an infectious organism that's causing the problem. Hmm. Yes, that is a great overview of the, the context people might need for this current situation. And it's just like, it's interesting because we've talked to other guests about big historical bullet points like polio and the Black Death. And I do hope we can highlight some other examples as we go to kind of make the strong overall case. But right now, clearly people are concerned with what's most immediate, and that's the coronavirus. You have written this paper on it, and people can find that linked in the show notes with this interview. And to quote the intro of that paper, you write, The coronavirus scare that emanated from Wuhan, China in December 2019 is an epidemic of testing. There is no proof that a virus is being detected by the test, and there is absolutely no concern about whether there is a significant number of false positives on the test. What is being published in medical journals is not science. Every paper has the goal of enhancing the panic by interpreting the data only in ways that benefit the viral theory, even when the data is confusing or even contradictory. In other words, the medical papers are propaganda. And man, <laughs> those are strong words, and I like strong words, but talk to us about your reasoning there. Talk to us about the test and what these medical papers are putting out. So, so some scientists in, in China and since then and other places found some RNA that is different. Now, everybody probably knows about DNA, but RNA is, is kind of the poor sister of DNA, but it might be more important. So in the nucleus of our cells, we have the DNA in the chromosomes that sort of represents our being in a sense. You know, that's our genes. And they're kept in the... Um, uh, in the nucleus. And by themselves, they're relatively passive. They can't actually do anything. But the cell decides it needs something done. And uh, so it will arrange for the DNA to produce some RNA. So RNA is very similar. It's like three quarters identical to DNA. That RNA may produce um, a protein. It, it may be a message of some kind. Okay, I don't think we're close to understanding all the things that RNA can do, but the important point is that every living cell contains RNA. And that, contain, that means every cell in our body. And within our cells, um, we have things called mitochondria, which have their own DNA and their own RNA. Um, bacteria, fungi, uh, it's believed that viruses have RNA. So if you find RNA, you have not proven that it came from a virus. Now, these scientists said, well, we found coronavirus RNA before, and it all looks the same. But if you go back, you will find that nobody ever purified a coronavirus and said, okay, here we have some particles. We looked at them under the electron microscope, and they're all identical. There's thousands of them. So we took half the sample, and we put it under the electron microscope to prove that it's pure. And then we took the other half, which we now know is pure, and we analyzed the RNA, and we found the RNA or DNA in some viruses. So nobody's done that, so it's completely speculative that this RNA comes from a virus. Now, how could it come from our human body? Well, unlike DNA, uh, RNA is much more malleable. It's produced and you know consumed back again. 
all the time. So your body doesn't necessarily always have the same RNA in it at every time. So possibly this RNA is related to respiratory diseases. Maybe it's a messenger in your body telling another part of your body that you need to produce something that will help fight off this respiratory infection. That could be an explanation of why people with respiratory diseases seem to be more commonly positive than those who don't have them. Although there's more than a few people who are perfectly asymptomatic who have this um, RNA. If this test was completely meaningless, like just a random number generator, but tended to give the same result on a person, that's, that's important because if it always gave different results for people, that'd be one thing. We, we would be doing the same thing. If we believe this test is for a virus, well, we will react to, to it in the way we are, whether it's meaningful or not. Because once we ascribe meaning to it, then we can shut the world down in order to get rid of it. But if it's not a virus, our actions will not get rid of it. If there's a lot of false positives, you will continue to get false positives. Nothing will make them go away. So let's say that there was a virus, but we had a test with a lot of false positives. So we eliminate the virus from Omaha, okay? But we continue to test in Omaha and we continue to get positives. Since if we were God, we would know, well, there's actually no virus left in Omaha. And so all of these positives are false positives, but as humans, we would think they're real cases. And so the epidemic will go on and on and on. And unless we wake up, there's only a few ways out of it. One way is uh, to change the testing standards, which I believe has been done several times, such as in China. And if you tighten up the test standards, you could make the number of positive tests uh, reduce dramatically. Um, or there's what they call a test algorithm. You might test three times. And the question is, what do you do if two are positive and one is negative? Um, you know, do you consider that a positive or an infected or uninfected person? Like how you interpret multiple test results is not the same in every place and it could be changed over time. So if you go from saying, for example, that we're going to do three tests and if one of them's positive, the person's infected, to you have to have three positive tests before we believe you're infected, then you would dramatically reduce the number of um, supposedly infected people. Um, in China, for example, I've been reading a paper that's only in, in Chinese or trying to get it translated. They did two tests, but the way they did it was the worst possible way. So they did the first test, and if you were positive, they said you're infected, done. Then they, if you were negative, they did the second test, and if you were positive, they said you're infected, done. And if you were negative both times, you were considered uninfected. So that is biased strongly towards false positives. And the reason they did that is because they didn't want to miss any cases. They said, uh, what harm does a false positive cause? Somebody goes in quarantine, you know, 14 days later, we let them out. They, they're not sick. They go home. No big deal. But if the number of false positives is greater than the number of true positives, you've wasted massive amounts of resources. And if any of those people get sick, you now believe they're a real case and you're going to treat them with toxic drugs, which is a whole nother section we can get into. Yes, that is a really great breakdown. And I am so concerned over the accuracy of this test. There's so much blind trust in the test. I already see 
some scary possibilities down the road. The implications of testing positive in this climate have huge ramifications for a person, whether it's just being a social pariah for a little while, how who knows how long, or if it turns into some kind of forced treatment. Now you don't have control or autonomy over yourself. You better hope you don't test positive for any of these tests. But right. well, I guess what more can be said about the accuracy and that kind of stuff? Well, okay, so there's a, the Chinese paper I'm reading, it said that amongst asymptomatic people, we estimate that the false positive rate is 80%. Woo. I think that should be shocking. <laughs> and that's not unusual for biological tests. They also said the opposite of that is that there's a 20% probability that if you get a positive test, it's a real positive. So, okay, it consumes a lot of resources, puts people in quarantine, which is damaging psychologically uh, to people. If you're 20, it's one thing, but what if you're 80 and you're weak? You're used to having your family around to look after your needs. You're now in a hospital room surrounded by people you can't see because they're all wearing gowns, and they're gonna do the minimum for you, but where's your daughter to help you out or your son? Where's the grandkids? Like, I, I think that kind of thing to elderly people can be incredibly damaging. And um, it's the elderly people who are dying. There's um, the Superior Institute for Public Health in Italy, the ISS, has published a summary of their analysis of the deaths from coronavirus positive people. And they studied, they're currently up to about 2,000 uh, 2, files that they've analyzed. And they found three people out of 2,000 who did not have pre-existing health conditions. They found an average age of 80. So what we're seeing is very elderly people who have pre-existing health conditions going into the hospital with, you know, some kind of, of pneumonia or flu or some kind of respiratory illness. Um, they're isolated. They're offered uh, extremely toxic drugs. And uh, they're often unnecessarily intubated, which means sticking a tube into you, into your lungs, uh, uh, to supposedly help you breathing, but that can be also very damaging. So the, the aggressive treatment, which comes along with the panic that we have this deadly new virus, is a factor. Now, I think a lot of those 2,000 people who died probably would have died in 2020 anyway. 50% of them had three or more pre-existing health conditions, which included, you know, chronic renal failure, liver disease, uh, cancer, various heart disorders. Um, hypertension was the least uh, significant of the uh, of these things. But 50% had three or more pre-existing conditions. So these are very, very weak people. They probably would have died this year, but they might have been helped along um, by doctors who are not trying to kill them, they're sincerely trying to help. But in a panic, they say, well, what about this new antiviral drug from Gilead called remdesivir? It's being researched for Ebola, so maybe it'll work for coronavirus. Let's give it a shot. I mean, can a, an 80-year-old with three pre-existing health conditions tolerate that? Mm. Yes, those are important questions. And when we look at just the numbers in this country that we have right now, I mean, last I looked, it was just over 11,000 cases and total deaths a little bit more than 150. And so the suggestion here is that this aggressive treatment 
could be responsible for these 150 deaths and not a virus. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, like in um, in the Italian report, which is which I keep going back to because it's a good source of information. I'd love to have this information from the United States. Like I tried to find out about the 22 who died in a nursing home in Washington uh, state. And if anybody has this information, I want to get it. Were they treated with antiviral drugs? Were they treated with high-dose corticosteroids? Were they all intubated? Like, what was their treatment? Was this normal for, for elderly people with pneumonia, or did they rush to some higher level of treatment? In the Italian report, uh, considering deaths of coronavirus-positive people, 52% had been put on um, antiviral drugs, quite likely the remdesivir, um, which is this Ebola drug that people are all excited about. Uh, 27% were put on um, high-dose corticosteroids. Now, both of these things, antiviral drugs and corticosteroids, after SARS, and I, I have a book chapter online which details what happened during SARS, both of these were criticized for being ineffective and toxic. For example, um, the antiviral drug used in SARS, which is not being used this time around, caused hemolytic anemia, which is like the breakdown of your blood cells. It caused um, liver problems in like 75% of people. Corticosteroids caused ongoing neurological deficit in a large number of people. It caused osteonecrosis, which is basically the rotting of your bones, which caused a need for joint replacements in many people who were treated during SARS. So these drugs they're giving are not friendly drugs. And they're being given to people the average age of 80 uh, who, who have pre-existing health conditions. I mean, I, I'm repeating myself, but I define this to be absolutely insane. Yes. And I actually love what you're saying. And I've been digesting material from other journalists that are saying similar things, the few that are. And it's really good for de-stressing over this whole entire thing. So I, I don't mind reiterating it. I actually had a little thing from John Rappaport here where he talks about the very same thing. I think he's referencing the same report, but he says many people who were diagnosed as coronavirus cases in Italy and then died were almost certainly put on these antiviral drugs. As you'll yeah, see well, now we, we have the numbers. I think what first came out was a news report of a press conference, which is kind of sketchy on details. But the Italian report is, is very clear. It's got nice graphs and it's, it's got numbers. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's basically saying of the first 2,000 people, you know, we, we, we don't, they don't even know for sure that the three people who had no pre-existing health conditions died from the virus. They're investigating to see if there was anything else. But I mean, what is this panic for? And if I can talk about numbers for a second, somebody sent me a paper on a flu in Italy. Italy's, I believe, around 63, 65 million people. In a bad flu season like 2016, 2017, I calculated from numbers in this paper that there could be 17,000 deaths of 65 plus people in Italy. 17,000 in one week. Did I say in one week? Hmm. So, so that's the, the background. In a bad flu season, in the peak 
week, like the worst week of the flu season, you could have 17,000 deaths. And, um, you know, in a, in a normal week, you might have 10,000. So the deaths from the, that are ascribed to the coronavirus so far are not really much more than a little bump. And it's quite probable that these elderly people are the people who normally would be in, included in the in the flu season's uh, mortalities. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, I, I couldn't believe this number, but I, I, I said, okay, if everybody in Italy lives to 80 and there's 65 million, so divide 65 million by 80 by 52, the number of weeks in a year, I got something like 12,000 people need to die every week in Italy if the average age is 80, uh, average lifespan is 80. So 17,000 is, is not that far out, and yet we've got a much smaller number and we're saying the sky is falling. And I think what we're doing is reclassifying deaths, we're hastening deaths through aggressive treatment. Um, and I don't know if the broader world will ever figure this out because we idolize doctors so much that we only listen to what comes out of their mouths. So if after this is all over and the doctors say that all the social isolation, the quarantining, the aggressive treatment, it was all a grand success, the press are going to write down, you know, Dr. So-and-so said our approach to the coronavirus was a grand success. They're never going to ask tough questions, which is deeply disturbing to me. Yes. And I am curious, I'm sure the lot, a lot of the listeners are too, is there a real virus. I mean, it's not a retrovirus. It's an RNA virus, they say. The test is looking at RNA. There's a lot of speculation about, is this a bioweapon, whatever. I don't think people are that concerned about that now. They just don't want to get something. Is there even something to get? Well, I, I don't think so. Um, my paper does not rest entirely on that. But I mean, I start with saying, yeah, we got this test for RNA. Nobody's purified the virus. We do not have the proof that is actually a test for a virus. But if you say, okay, well, I don't, I don't buy that, you know, this RNA is viral, that doesn't eliminate the risk of false positives. And nobody's done the analysis. Like, for example, why don't we go through the freezers of hospitals, which are full of, you know, historical samples of, uh, of snot, which is, you know, basically what they, they get. Uh, or throat swabs, right? Sputin. And those, these are frozen for, and stored for years for various research. So why don't, we, why don't we analyze a few thousand of those in a blinded setting, mixed with samples from current patients, and see if we only find the RNA in the new samples. Because if we find 1% of historical samples are testing positive on this test, that means we have a 1% uh, false positive rate, and and that is very significant. Let me explain. In Wuhan, a city of 10 million, a 1% false positive rate would mean there's 100,000 positive people in Wuhan with a 1% with a false positive rate. So because the majority of people don't have the disease, a small false positive rate can dominate over the actual number of positives. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And as far as the test is concerned, 
I've heard you talk about the fact that you would expect many private organizations to be working on a better test and we'd let the free market decide, but what's actually happening? Who makes the test? Well, the the test is based on PCR technology. And and basically, if you've got the primers, the little bits of RNA, not the entire string of RNA, the little bits of RNA that you use to start the whole thing off, then you basically are just customizing a standard PCR machine to become a coronavirus testing machine. So, you know, PCR is, is great, very flexible technology, but people have almost a religious faith in its capabilities. I, I should talk a little bit about the inventor of PCR, Kerry Mullis. He got the Nobel Prize in 1993, and sadly and tragically, he died last year because I think we could really use some advice from him under the current circumstances. But this is one of the interesting things, is in 1996, Dr. Peter Duesberg, who I've mentioned, wrote a book called Inventing the AIDS Virus, which questioned whether HIV caused AIDS. And the foreword was written by Kerry Mullis. So Kerry Mullis was no you know, um, establishment scientist. The reason he was able to invent this major advance in biotechnology, PCR, was because he was such a creative and thoughtful scientist, and he didn't go along with the herd. Um, so he was right up there with Peter Duesberg saying, well, maybe HIV isn't the cause of AIDS. So I think he might be um, very skeptical. He also said um, that quantitative PCR is an oxymoron. And, and by that, I mean using my technology to measure the amount of RNA or DNA uh, will not work. And that's, of course, exactly what they're doing in many cases um, with this test. And maybe if we can talk about the test a little bit, I can explain that, that this test, like almost all biological tests, is not a binary test. And by binary, I mean infected, uninfected, positive, negative reactive, non-reactive. There are essentially no um, uh, tests for infectious diseases that are binary. They are all a continuum of something. And often it is a color change or something like that that is measured. And if the color is deeper than a certain amount, then you're positive. Um, so with PCR, uh, PCR is a cyclic technique. It's, it's a very simple technique. If you did it once, you, you'd say, why did we bother? But it doubles the amount of DNA at every step. So if you do it uh, 10 times, you get about 1,000 times more DNA. You, if you do it 20 times, you get a million times more, 30 times, a billion times more. So it's a very powerful technique for manufacturing DNA. Its use for testing is a, is a little bit more um, sketchy. Um, so, the, so what they basically do is they run this test until they get sufficient material to be detected at a certain level, like they often use fluorescence. So the glow is bright enough and they say, okay, we got enough material, we'll stop. And then they record the number of cycles. So it might be 20, 30, 40. And then they have an arbitrary cutoff and they say, if you get to 37 cycles and you don't have enough material generated, you're negative. The problem with that is if we follow that, in one paper that was published by uh, researchers from Singapore, they found that uh, they followed, they tested 
a group of people, 18 people, for one to two weeks every day. So every day they had a test. And in the majority of cases, the patients went from positive or infected one day to negative or uninfected the, the next day. No big deal. Maybe they've been cured. But then back to positive or infected. So how can this be? If the test is accurate and it's showing that you are infected when it's positive and uninfected when you're negative, then what was happening to these people? How did they get reinfected in a sterile hospital situation? Or maybe the test is just not very good. Hmm. Yes, that's very insightful. I know there's a lot of nuance and complexity to these sorts of things. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting a little too deep into, into this, but you know, PCR is so important. It's, it's like understanding how the internal combustion engine works, right? Like it's, it's so integrated into our society. Um, uh, this is probably more important right now than knowing how a car works. <laughs> Fair. And not to be too paranoid, but I wonder about a potential situation where once we're all inside and they send out these tests, maybe we have to test negative to reintegrate into society. Is there a way to beat the test if that were to happen? Uh, I haven't even considered that um, question of, of beating uh, the test. I mean, the, the test, um, the test is positive in people who have absolutely no symptoms uh, quite frequently. I think on the Princess Diamond cruise ship, it was about 50% of people who tested positive were symptomatic and 50% were not. Um, so you theoretically have to test every person in the United States in order to say which ones are, are, are clear or not. But there's also people will test positive one day and then negative the next. In, in one hospital um, in China, I think in Guangzhou, uh, they found that 14% of people who'd been released on the basis that they tested negative twice later tested positive. And of course, they believe so much in the test, they're going, there must be some deep significance to this. But I think the deep significance is the test sucks <laughs> and cannot be relied on to detect um, a virus and probably should not be being used. And it has created this whole thing, um, this whole global economic social disaster, potentially out of nothing but the hubris of doctors who get a shiny machine, um, which is high tech and costs a lot of money, and they assume it can do no wrong. Right. Yes. And to back up just a little and talk about the virus itself or how this started, you did an episode of your podcast where you talked with a Dr. James Lyons-Wheeler who holds the conventional opinions on this virus and was giving the conventional advice about social distancing and what have you. But you asked a really insightful question about the first initial cases where you said, if this new virus has the same symptoms as pneumonia or the seasonal flu, what was it that would bring the first doctor of coronavirus detection to suggest that this even was something new? And I'm curious about that as well. How did this get started? before the panic set in? It's kind of absurd. The doctor who started it, I think a Dr. Lee, who, who sadly died, and, and I think he might've been one of the victims of the antiviral drugs, um, he wrote a, an email saying, there are seven people in quarantine in our hospital. This is highly unusual. There must be a new virus circulating. Well, he's an ophthalmologist. So 
I, I don't know, you know, how he, you know, and, and the, he's, Chinese have been criticized because the doctors at the hospital said, you know, calm down, you know, you're getting carried away. But maybe the, the other Chinese doctors were right. But when this memo got out and the Chinese government was deeply embarrassed by looking like they were covering up this thing, they said, okay, well, we got to come up with a test for it. And then the whole thing fell apart. But it was seven people. And, um, you know, doctors aren't very good at, at detecting poisoning. Um, China it, it doesn't always use things like pesticides very carefully. So you could have seven cases of pesticide poisoning, possibly related to the seafood market, who, who end up with serious pneumonia-like symptoms and uh, chemicals can cause pneumonia-like symptoms. Um, and maybe they all died. And uh, the doctors assumed this was a deadly new infection, but it, it might have been a bad case of food poisoning due to some kind of carelessness with some of the farmers uh, at the market, or maybe somebody had gone around the market and, and uh, fumigated the market while there was still animals and, and foods there. You know, there's, hmm. there's a million things that could explain seven people getting sick. Right. And so, wow, just to reiterate, the doctor who kicked this off was an optometrist who is now dead just a few months after it started. Yes. I mean, there's pictures of him in the hospital with tubes coming out and the whole bit. But I mean, people say, why would he die? And I, I'm saying, look, I, I've known some doctors. If one of your friends is sick, a fellow doctor, you're going to make sure they get the best treatment. And, you know, even in China, where everybody is equal, some are more equal than others. And if you're a doctor in a hospital, you're going to get the gold-plated treatment, just as if Xi Jinping, uh, the party chairman, was in your hospital, right? He doesn't get the same treatment as everybody else. It's just a fact, right? And the same is true in Canada with our socialized medicine. Hockey players get to the front of the line. Politicians get to the front of the line. And of course, in America, if you got money, you get to the front of the line. So they probably said, well, look, we've We've got this guy who's sick. He's a bit of a hero now. Let's try remdesivir on him or, or Caletra, another antiviral drug, or something like that. Like they might have thrown everything at him because saying, we got to save this guy. But actually, they ended up killing him. I mean, I don't know. I'm only speculating, but it seems he was 34 years old. There aren't many 34-year-olds dying of this supposed coronavirus. There are, as I pointed out, mostly people in their 70s, 80s, 90s. Right, right. Yeah, I just think about the ramifications, how this all rolled out, and it seemed just a little strange that this all happened so fast with the control mechanisms, if this is all just some random pop-up of a virus. I mean, we've had these things happen before, bird flu, swine flu, we didn't do anything like this. And the fact that the person who kicked it off is dead it's just curious to me from a, a certain standpoint. Yeah, I mean, another another curious thing is that there was sort of a pandemic training session, which I think was run in Wuhan or somewhere like that. And Wuhan does have a big virus laboratory. And I think this kicked off a lot of conspiracy theorists saying, you know, okay, this was a plan, bring in the new world order. It was a bioweapon, stuff like that. But this is what I think happens is... Doctors are trained in what to do in a pandemic situation. And of course, if you've um, just gone through training, you know, a, a live exercise, there's this deadly new virus out there and it's all just on computers. But, you, you know, you have been trained about what to do. 
also, you're in a city that has a virology lab. So if, if you say um, in a Wuhan hospital, um, I wonder if we could get this, these seven patients analyzed for um, uh, uh, you know, a panel of viruses. Let's look for a few thousand viruses. And somebody says, oh, I got a contact at the Wuhan virology lab. No problem. It might not be so easy, even in Beijing or Shanghai, where they don't have this virology lab, it might be much more difficult, but it's just down the road. So, you know, a couple of days later, you get the results back and they say, yeah, these seven people seem to have the same RNA. It, and, but they might have tested for 10,000 different viruses. So it might just be a statistical coincidence. If you test for enough viruses in seven people, you're going to come up with a random um, uh coincidence. Like if you shake dice enough times, you're going to get six sixes in a row, right? It's, it's just a matter of how long do you sit there shaking dice. Right. And while we're kind of talking about the speculation out there in terms of causes, you work in telecommunications. Do you put any stock in the speculation that the polluted city of Wuhan mixed with an implementation of 5G in October could be a contributing factor? Could that be possible? Yeah, I'm sad that's got thrown into the mix um, because I'm a telecom expert and I don't know what 5G is. Uh, 5G uses frequencies that are lower than 4G and higher. So I have no idea what frequencies they were using. Um, the higher frequencies generally don't go very far. For example, a recent uh, study in uh, a big city in the US, probably Chicago or New York, found that the 5G system from one operator that was running at 600 megahertz, which is a low frequency, was detectable throughout the entire city. But the high frequencies that people are more concerned about, 30 gigahertz, was detectable only in 6% of the city. If you have um, uh, a 30 gigahertz transmitter on one side of a glass window, you will not get any a significant amount of energy. You will not get de detectable energy coming out the other side of the glass window. So these 5G high-frequency systems have a very low um, uh, what can I, footprint. And so it's going to be a long time before any city is like bathed in 5G. <clears throat> and it will probably only be, you know, pedestrian areas, downtown, because the cost of putting, um, you know, a little uh, antenna every 20 meters, 20 yards, if you're American, um, is going to be too great. So, no, I, I don't buy it. But, um, you know, I know a lot of people are excited about 5G. To me, 5G is a buzzword like 4G. It's, it's kind of a, a very fuzzy concept. It includes everything that's new gets thrown into 5G, just like 10 years ago, everything that was new got thrown into the 4G umbrella. Fair, fair. Well, do you think EMF radiation or frequencies could cause flu-like symptoms? Well, no, but I'm a telecom consultant, so I, I really don't think, you know, this is an area where I obviously have a financial conflict of interest. I make money from being a telecom consultant, so um, I, I want you to consider that when you consider what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, I, I genuinely believe this. But it, it's it's like I'm not an unbiased uh, party. Fair. Wow. I just I've never heard anyone be just so forthright about their biases before, and I just think that's interesting and awesome of you to say, regardless of 
of this situation. And it is small potatoes in this big scheme. It's like people hear virus and they're looking for a cause, but there might not be a cause to find because this might be a manufactured situation. Right. Well, it's it's to me, it's kind of like the the um, uh, bioweapon. First, is there a virus? Then let's talk about a bioweapon. If there's a virus, we can talk about whether it was a laboratory accident, a vaccine experiment gone wrong, a bioweapon, or something that came out of a bat or a pangolin or whatever, right? Or maybe a virus that's been around for hundreds of years and we just we just freaked out about it. So it, the, that's the fundamental question. Everybody says, well, okay, so there's no virus. What's causing all these deaths? That, I think, is one of the big lies. Like I, I said, in Italy, we do not have evidence yet that there is a surge in deaths um, and that if there is a small surge, it could be explained by aggressive treatment and um, yeah, of very elderly and weak people. So all this stuff about 5G assumes that there was a surge in illness in Wuhan in December of 2019. If there was no surge in mortality, then there's really no purpose talking about the cause. Like, is it air pollution? Is it 5G? Is it eating bats? Like, we're talking about causes for something that might not have happened. It's a city of 10 million people, so it would actually be quite difficult to see a surge in mortality because from one year to the next, you're probably going to get quite a bit of variation in mortality, um, you know, based, based probably on a lot of factors. Um, you know, you have bad flu seasons, you, you do have, definitely have air pollution. There's lots of factors that can go into um, why uh, mortality rates vary from year to year. But if mortality rates vary a lot, then it's going to be very difficult to see if there was actually anything happened. And I do have some data. Um, a doctor colleague of mine in Washington, D.C., said, go look at the mortality statistics for 2003 for Hong Kong. So I looked at like 2000 through 2018. There was no surge in mortality during the SARS era. And so I thought, okay, well, it's Hong Kong. What about Taiwan, China, Vietnam, Canada, Singapore, the other major affected countries? Only in Vietnam can you see a bump in 2003. In all of the other countries, the 2003 was completely in line with the previous years. Sometimes it was higher than 2002, but this is part of a general increasing trend in mortality. Um, but if you sort of looked at how much higher was 2002 than 2001 and 2003 and 2002, there was, there was no bump. So SARS, which was like a big deal, left no footprints. Hmm. Wow. Wow. You're just presenting people with so much interesting info. And another point about the treatments, we're hearing that there's some success with these old malaria or Ebola drugs. And it sounds a little like Big Pharma trying to repurpose and resell stockpiles of old stuff in the warehouse. Are you skeptical of this? Yes. Well, I mean, I saw one paper that, you know, had a headline like, um, you know, I think it was hydroxychloroquine cures uh, uh, a patient. Well, I mean, people go from coronavirus positive to coronavirus negative all the time, and then two days later they go back. So 
that doesn't necessarily mean anything. But they, when you read the actual article, in the article it said it was a virological cure. So what does that mean? Well, a virological cure um, means that the that the amount of virus or the detection of the virus changed. It doesn't mean that the health of the patient improved. So the question is, if you have an 80-year-old person with pneumonia who you think has the coronavirus and you give them hydroxychloroquine, what is more important to you? That you get rid of the marker for the virus or that the person gets healthy and gets out of the hospital? Because their cure was not the person gets healthy and gets out of the hospital. Their cure was, oh, now they're um, uh, coronavirus negative, but they still have pneumonia. They're still uh, on a ventilator. They they still are having kidney failure, right? Like, it's it's not what you think it is when they talk about these uh, drugs having positive effects. There was around 2006. It was some anniversary of AIDS. There was an article in the New York Times that that uh, was written by a doctor, and he was he was reflecting back on what had happened during the many years of AIDS at that time, and he said something like. This patient in the um, in the my waiting room, with the wasted face, with the jeans that are you know buckled tightly around his skinny waist and the big hump of fat on his back, he is one of my successes because the amount of virus in his blood is almost zero. But at the same time, the guy is dying from the side effects of the drugs, and the doctor is almost proud of it. So that's what a cure means to a virologist. Hmm. Very telling, very telling. And let's talk about contagiousness and transmission, because I'm sure a lot of people are worried about that right now. And I'm sure that the panic is overhyped. Obviously, you're pointing out that it is. And the treatment may be causing more deaths than the disease itself. They're worried about going outside and being near other people. And it's ridiculous. I went to a recreation area and they were just closing the washrooms uh, permanently until this is over. And, so, and and there's room at this recreation area for maybe 200 automobiles for people to go skiing and biking and all kinds of other activities. And I'm thinking, so washrooms were created as a public health measure. So people didn't defecate on the edge of the parking lot and cause disease. But we're saying coronavirus is more important than all the known problems that occur when you don't provide washroom facilities. And, you know, at some point you got to go. And so you go somewhere where somebody might step on it or, you know, a dog might investigate it and drag some of it home, stuff like that. I mean, this is just absolute craziness. Um, you know, we're we're losing sight of everything. But transmissibility. A couple of examples. The Princess Diamond cruise ship was a perfect incubator for the virus. It, um, for several days, it kind of floated around until it was it got to Japan and it was put into quarantine. So for a few days, the passengers all got to mix. Then they were sent to their cabins. <clears throat> um, and in some cases, there was somebody who was coronavirus positive in the cabin with somebody who wasn't. The crew um, it would mingle with the the uh, passengers because the passengers needed to eat, right? So somebody had to bring 
food to their quarters since the passengers were not allowed to go to the dining room. So in this whole multi-week soap opera where nobody wanted to, you know, handle these passengers, 16% became positive. 16%. Um, there was a tiny number of deaths. I think it was like 1%. And it was all amongst people who were 70 or, or older. And of the people who did become coronavirus positive, half of them had no symptoms. Another interesting case was the first so-called case of community transmission in America. So I think in Illinois, uh, a woman comes back from Wuhan to her husband who has chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And probably the reason he didn't go to Wuhan was because he was too sick to travel. <clears throat> so she comes back and he tests positive and everybody's all excited. Look, it's a case of transmission. So they tracked down <clears throat> the contacts of these two people. I think it was 347 people and they were able to actually uh, um, contact like 320 of them or something like that. And they found not a single one of them was positive. So how could this be? I mean, this this man was um, really quite sick. So he probably had in-home nursing help. There was probably a cleaner that came to the house. There were probably children and grandchildren, maybe great-grandchildren that came to the house. And out of all these contacts, not one, apart from the man himself, uh, were infected by the woman who came back from China. Hmm. Curious thing. There's a lot of curious <laughs> things. And, and as I said in my introduction, I think this is really true, is like, I want to look at the data and interpret it in the most sensible way possible. Um, but the people writing these medical papers will take this and they will interpret it in the way that is beneficial to the viral theory. So they emphasize the fact that this old guy became positive. He became infected by his, his wife. That's exciting. The 347 people who didn't become infected, well, that's not really so exciting. Hmm. Uh, but, you know, if you're a scientist, you should be saying, well, okay, so obviously the transmissibility of this, they, they talk about every person infecting three people, and here you have the wife who infected one and the husband who infected zero. I think the average infectivity what they call the R0 of this is 0 0.5, not three. So you'd think they'd say, why, why is it in this case? But there's no curiosity. They just go on and find more evidence for their theories and ignore everything that's against their theories. Yeah. So if this is some kind of manufactured situation, it has to be international in scope. I guess, why aren't more people in the medical profession seeing through this? They're just following orders? Well, there, there are some, like I've, I've, you know, um, I just got a message from Dr. Henry Bauer, who was, he's not medical, but he was the Dean of Arts and Sciences at Virginia Tech before he, he retired. And um, he was very positive about um, my paper. He said, everybody should read David Crow's accounts. I fear that he has it right. And the people who ought to know it will fight tooth and nail against admitting it. And uh, so, you know, I'm in contact with a number of, of doctors and other medical professionals and, and scientists who, who are 
on site, but they're a tiny, tiny uh, minority. The, medicine is very hierarchical. Uh, MDs are not scientists. They're really technicians. They learn a lot of information. They assume the information they learn is facts, and then they apply it. That's not to denigrate the, some of the wonderful things they can do, but they're not scientists in that they they sit, they have a patient, and they go, I wonder, you know, uh, if what what we should do with this one person, you know, in terms of doing something different that's not in the book. Because if you do something that's not in the book, that's not state-of-the-art, that's not proper procedure, and you're likely to get sued. So you you get forced into... This is, you know, there, I got three choices according to best practices. So I'm going to choose one of those three, even if I think it, there may be a, a, a better option. Right. I, I also think um, doctors and public health officials are a little bit like pilots. Like if you are in an airplane and an engine goes out, it's very likely that the pilot has never been in that situation in a real airplane before. This is the first time in his life. He's had an engine go out. How does he know exactly what to do? Because he's been trained on flight simulators a million different ways, and he knows exactly what to do. And not only that, but if there's two planes at the same time in different parts of the world run by different airlines and the engines go out, those two pilots are likely to do almost the same thing because they've been trained on the same simulators to do the same things. Pandemic training is the same thing. You, you stock up on gowns and masks, you quarantine everybody who could possibly be a, a subject. It's a machine and you just follow the machine. The problem is, the assumption is, the promise is that if we follow the book, if we do everything it says in the book, make people stay home, close every unnecessary place where people might run into other people, they've been promised that this will end the epidemic. And I suspect it will not because it's an epidemic of false positive testing and they can't get rid of the positive tests because they can't admit that they have false positives. And so this thing could go on and on and on until a couple of things could happen. First of all, they might say, okay, well, basically we have so many people infected. We may as well just stop. In which case, I think there's going to be some tough questions about you put us through, you destroyed the world's economy. And in the end you said, well, would have been, we didn't really need to do anything because we couldn't. Um, or they can maybe tighten up their testing procedures so nobody tests positive uh, or the diagnostic criteria. So basically, it's very difficult to get tested. And if you get tested, they've changed the number of cycles such that very few people test positive. So there's very few ways out of this mess that they have created for themselves. And they got there not by saying, let's create a mess. They picked up the book on pandemics and they they just followed it exactly the way it's supposed to be followed. Well, that's the thing. This doesn't seem to be just an accident that got out of control, does it? I mean, there's got to be some purpose. Someone or something is driving this. Is there an agenda? Is it economic restructuring? Is it a big pharma money grab? In South Africa, there's a famous incident where the leader of a large tribe told all the members of his tribe to kill all their cattle. And nobody knows why he did this, but he did it. And they all obeyed the leader of the tribe and they killed their cattle. And then a massive famine erupted, you know, not surprising. 
And, and I, I think this is one of those things. The system worked. It's a hierarchical system. You do what you're told. You kill your cattle. Why am I starving? This is kind of where we are now. It's like we've, we've got social distancing. We've closed the restaurants. We've closed arenas. We've closed schools. We've closed everything, and we're still getting cases. Like, you know, will people start to ask tough questions? Will they start to ask questions of the doctors and the public health officials, or will they continue just to focus on the politicians? Like politicians, in my mind, are mostly idiots. And it's right for the press to ask tough questions of the politicians, but it's wrong for them not to ask tough questions of the medical officials. It's all, uh, you know, what do they call that? Softball questions. Right. Blind faith. It, yes. And it's like, you know, how are you doing working so hard? Do you have enough people? Do you have enough masks? Should we be doing more testing? Like nobody, is there a single member of the press who's asked, what is the false positive rate of this test? And what's the implications of false positive? And if we had a false positive problem and we eliminated the virus, how would we know we'd eliminated the virus because we're still getting positive tests? Like those are questions that should be asked by the press to medical officials and it's not happening. Right. And why didn't SARS or West Nile or Zika require this level of action from everyone? That, that's a very interesting question. And uh, I think the, the end of SARS, and I, I kind of got into this with James Lyons Weilers, and he was a little bit shocked at what I said. The, the end of SARS was definitional. The definition of SARS was you needed one or two symptoms, such as a fever one degree over normal, which is pretty ridiculous. Um, you needed a positive SARS test and you needed, uh, oh, pardon me, it's the wrong order. So you needed a symptom or two. You needed epidemiological contact. You needed contact with another SARS patient and you needed a positive test. So basically, if you went to the hospital and said, I think I've got SARS, they'd say, you don't have any symptoms, go away. You come with symptoms and they'd say, okay, have you been in contact with a SARS patient. And you say, no, but I think I got SARS. They say, go away. You do not have SARS. Only if you had contact, would you go to um, the test and being diagnosed with SARS. So what happened is once they got everybody in quarantine and it was a smaller number of people, there was no possibility of you being in contact with another SARS patient. There was no possibility of you being diagnosed with SARS unless you were a doctor in a hospital or something very unusual happened. And so the epidemic dried up in a purely definitional way. There might have been tens of thousands of people out there who would have been positive on the SARS test. In fact, I'm sure there were. But they weren't being tested because they didn't have symptoms, or if they did have symptoms, they hadn't had a, a contact with another patient. But the definitions for uh, the new coronavirus have put far too much weight on the test. And so we're having asymptomatic people being diagnosed as coronavirus victims. Because, for example, if grandpa goes to the hospital with pneumonia, then they test his whole family, and two of his family test positive, and now you've got two more cases. So you can see how the definition of who you test and how you define a positive case has a huge impact on the number of cases that you have. And, and this is why Italy, Japan, and Korea self-generated epidemics, and so far, America and Canada are more conservative with their testing, and therefore we don't have enough cases. 
if Canada says, or United States says, anybody who has a cough can get tested, and, and if you test positive, we're going to test your whole family, then we will have an epidemic of thousands of, of cases more in an instant. Mm. Yes, I am worried about that very same thing. I think about people who have a domestic situation, they call the police, the police show up and they accidentally shoot someone. It's <laughs> like, well, if you don't call the police, if you don't engage the system, then it's not going to accidentally kill you. And I feel similarly about this. Like, I don't want to get tested because if I test positive, then I've given up control of my life. Yes. It, it, uh, that That's, you know, it's a big thing. We've given up a lot of, civil liberties willingly. Um, and, and I don't know where it's going to go from here. I mean, right now in my city, in Canada, you know, things, more and more things are shut down, like schools are shut down, universities are shut down. People are kind of enjoying a holiday, but they also, in many cases, have no income anymore. And, you know, a lot of people can go a few weeks. Some people can go a few months. But nobody, except the very rich, can go a year without income. So as every week proceeds, the pain is is going to get more and more. And the government is in both countries is printing money to give money to people who aren't producing anything economically. Like I don't know how long I'm I'm not a big capitalist, but I don't see how this can sustain itself. We destroy the economy and then we pay people money to go buy food but um you know a, a lot of people are are not working so doesn't the economy contract dramatically when you do that right and if this is all based on nothing basically which is the premise that you've laid out then that seems to be one of the goals maybe the definition or the test will change to get fewer results when the agenda is achieved and the agenda seems to be economic devastation well in um in toronto which was uh it, toronto was kind of an incubator because the probably the economic impact was greatest there i mean it was weird the rest of canada didn't really have any cases but in toronto it was it took over the city they just like now they closed theaters they closed restaurants they canceled all conferences you know flights stopped coming in and out of Toronto. The economic impact on Toronto was devastating, but of course, you know, Toronto is a small part of, it doesn't like to think of it that way, but it's a small part of the Canadian economy. So it was able to recover pretty quickly. Um, but I wonder if at some point there were some politicians who said privately to these medical officials, if we don't, if we don't end this in a week, the economy of Toronto is going to collapse. So I'm not telling you what to do, but it sure would be nice if it was over soon. And then, boom, it was over. <laughs> Just very suddenly. And, um, you know, I think it, it, it might have been a message like, under no circumstances, test somebody who does not fit the diagnostic criteria. Because at first, it might have been kind of loosey-goosey. It's like, tighten everything up. And then nobody's being tested. Nobody's positive. There's no more epidemic. Mira miracle. And then everything went back to normal and people forgot about it. God. But now it's the whole world that's um, being driven into the ground like Toronto was. And, and it's not going to recover so quickly.
Right. It's just so weird to think that it's that simple. Well, I mean, these these people tests, the word test is very powerful because first of all, if I say I got a test for coronavirus, you think, okay, it's either positive or negative. That's not true. You, you think that there's a single test, right? I take a blood sample, I put it in a machine, I get my positive or negative, even though we know now it's not binary. Um, but in many cases, there's an algorithm. You might be tested two or three times. And then depending on where you are, uh, you know, two positive and a negative might be handled in different ways. In some places, you might be retested. In some places, they say, well, two out of three is good enough, you're positive. Um, so it very much uh, depends on those rules. In China, originally, the rule for a confirmed case of coronavirus was solely a positive coronavirus test. In mid-February, they changed the definition. So you needed to have symptoms and contact with another patient and a positive coronavirus test. And look what happened. The number of cases in China dropped. Well, how much of that was due to a change in the definition of a confirmed case? Right, right. Did the Chinese kind of look at SARS and go, wait a minute, like we're never going to end this if we don't do something? And I, I think, um, you know, the Chinese government, like all governments, um, this is particularly important in China, does not want to be embarrassed. So if, if um, the party president or whoever, uh, the party chairman, says, you know, we got to fight to the death with the coronavirus, you're not going to turn around and say, well, actually, the test we were using was a piece of shit. Yeah. Right? Like, what you're going to do is you're going to quietly change the, the book that, that controls the testing and the diagnosis, and then the cases go away, and now the party chairman can stand up and says, you know, with the great uh, assistance of the wonderful Chinese medical community and police and army and all the good people, we conquered this. It was a great victory for our country. And every country, whether it's Donald Trump or Justin Trudeau, they're all going to stand up and, and praise themselves if things work out. But I'm not sure the way we're going that they're not going to end up um, losing their jobs over this mm. because they might not be able to get themselves out. I, I think the Chinese government is much more um, uh, because it's not elected. There's a lot of bureaucrats who are used to analyze this, do the numbers on this, right? Do a report, very dry bureaucratic people. They don't run on emotions. Um, and I think they're better suited for a situation where it's like, we need to fix this. It's like, how would we fix it? Well, what if we change the definition? <laughs> we, could, we could end this. Whereas in Canada, you got all this rhetoric in the United States. We're going to beat this. We got the best health officials in the world. We're going to get over this. Everybody go home for 18 months and uh, we'll, 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 we'll do this. Yeah. And I hope people ask more questions when the panic has subsided. Are there other ways we could maybe compare and contrast this with SARS, given the fact that a lot of data came out afterward? Because they're just trying to treat people left and right in the midst of the panic. And then when the dust clears, you can look at that data and that's where you get the verifiable evidence that it wasn't as bad as they said it was and some of the deaths are caused by the drugs. The, the, the treatments are almost parallel. Corticosteroids, um, intubation, 
um, and antiviral drugs. Now we've added chloroquine, which I don't think is an anti-malaria drug, not, not antiviral, but you know, various drugs, uh, very similar drugs to in uh, SARS, plus intubation, all uh, steroids, intubation, and um, antiviral drugs were associated with harm. Infectivity. There was a wonderful accidental experiment that occurred in China. I mean, this, this paper in an obscure journal uh, even had a little map. So they had an AIDS ward in a hospital in Guangdong, the epicenter of SARS, and it had some empty space. So guess who they put onto the ward with the AIDS patients? The SARS patients. So you have immunosuppressed people, AIDS patients, and you have the most infectious virus then known to man, SARS. Uh, the paper notes that although um, SARS patients and AIDS patients were not put in the same room, they were free to mingle in kind of a living room at the end of the hallway. And that there was a, a hallway for the staff in between the two sides of the floor, which had open windows, so there's free airflow. And in one case, an AIDS patient was accidentally roomed with the SARS patients. And so here is the question, how many AIDS patients, these immunosuppressed people who actually were immunosuppressed, they had uh, opportunistic infections, they had signs of immunosuppression. That's why they were in the hospital. How many of them got SARS? How many? And the answer, of course, is zero. <laughs> so here you've got the most infectious a disease in the world and it can't infect AIDS patients. Wow. Now, obviously, if you proposed to do this experiment, it would be the most unethical thing in the world, but they accidentally did the experiment and you got to ask, was SARS really infectious? It's so interesting. And so you've looked at SARS, HIV, AIDS, West Nile, and several others. Does this always seem to be a similar story? Is this just an operation that the medical system runs every so often? Well, I, I think it's kind of like with sugar, which I, th I think was more of a conspiracy. Um, you know, some people in the, say, the 1950s are starting to get concerned about diseases related to, to sugar, cardiovascular diseases, dental problems, things like that. So the uh, sugar manufacturers changed the subject. Let's say it's a high fat diet that's a problem. Let's focus on fat. Take the pressure off sugar. And, and it worked for about 50 years. I mean, now I think people are realizing that the low-fat diet is a crock and that sugar is a very harmful substance. Um, but it, it was a way of diverting attention. So let's say that you're manufacturing chemicals in St. Louis, Missouri, Monsanto. And, uh, you know, there's people getting sick with what's now called St. Louis encephalitis. Well, do you want to admit that it might be uh, the emissions from your productions of pesticides or would you rather it was a virus and you know maybe you know if you're a, a pesticide manufacturer you could just like pay some virus researchers to look into these things because you can guarantee that if you put a virus researcher on the trail of a disease they will come back with the cause being a virus i mean if they say if your only tool is a hammer everything looks like a nail well, if you're a virologist, if your only disease cause is, is a virus, then every disease is caused by a virus. That's how they, they think. Right. As opposed to pollution in the environment, 
which seems to have happened several times in these pockets, even Legionnaire's disease. It's called that because the Legionnaires were meeting at a particular place, and it seems like they got respiratory infections from toxins in the air conditioner of this place or something similar to that. Yeah, so blame it on a bacteria, yes. Hmm, and let's ask some more of the serious questions. Do you have advice for people? This is where it gets dicey, but... I want everyone to think for themselves, but I guess there's got to be some things you would recommend. Well, I think I would hope that people would read my paper. I know it's it's not easy because it's 20 pages long, but it's I've tried to write it in a, as non-technical a way as I can. So I think anybody can read it and think about it. And um, I have links to um, all the references that I have medical papers, newspaper articles, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and then I guess talk to other people. Like we're in a position where we don't really have much power. I know that if I write to a politician in Canada or I write to a medical official, my email will be discarded. They will say, I'm too busy for this crap. I got an epidemic to fight. Um, but there may be people out there who have a little bit of influence, personal influence with politicians who could say, you know, wait a minute, there's some things about this that don't add up. And the way we're going is never going to get ended unless we make some changes. Um, I mean, obviously you have to be somewhat respectful socially. Um, but I mean, I think people should push back on ridiculous uh, rules that are impinging on their life and seem to have no purpose except making people feel pain so they feel like they're contributing to some grand uh, project. Um, I don't know. I, I Certainly, if people read a local newspaper article that bears on what I've written, I'd be very happy to hear from people. For example, if you hear about a case of somebody who, um, you know, tested positive, but had no travel history and no contact with another patient, and it's published in some little local newspaper, I'd love to hear about that. Because, you know, I've, I've got a list of those cases in, in an appendix of my article. And those cases, when you look at them, you go, well, you know, it's starting to look like at least some people can test positive without actually being infected. And how do we know how many of those people there are? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of talk about a vaccine and a lot of paranoid people will happily inject themselves with it. Does the vaccine element concern you? Well, I don't think they're going to be able to get away with this because I don't think they can keep this going long enough. Uh, I mean, that's what happened with SARS is everybody's talking about a vaccine and specific drugs. But the disease was over so quickly because of the drastic impact on the economy. It was over so quickly that they never really had time to test any drugs and certainly didn't have time to test uh, to develop and test a vaccine. I don't think they can keep this going for two years. I mean, there's going to be people starving to death on the streets if if they try to keep the economy suppressed for two years in, in order to achieve an unachievable goal. So I, I think they've overreached this time. Uh, by insisting that we all stay away from each other and not go to work in many cases and not have any income uh, and have our children at home instead of in school. Um, 
like I say, the first couple of weeks, it's kind of like a little holiday. You can amuse your children, go to the park. But then when they say, well, you can't go outside, can't go to the park, um, you know, you can only go to the grocery store once a week. Um, there's going to there's gonna be a lot of problems. Domestic violence will probably go up. Suicides will go up. What about people who live alone? And and maybe their only their only joy in the week was going to bingo or something. And now they can't do that. I talked to my 90-year-old mother who whose social events are she volunteers at the hospital. She's been told to stay away. And she volunteers at a museum. So that's two days of the week. So two days of the week, she gets out of the house. She spends her day with other people. And that's taken away from her. Um, so there's there's a, a lot of people who are going to be very lonely. Uh, they might end up drinking too much, drug abuse. Uh, um, we, we could see an increase in deaths from ad, you know unexpected consequences of this grand experiment. Well, it's just interesting because I have had guests in the past talk about the fact that the baby boomers aren't dying off and the economy is very overtaxed by them. And then this happens and it's like, well, who's the most susceptible to this process? I don't know. It's interesting timing. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, I think social media has had a big impact. Uh, things can get blown out of proportion. I was, you know, my mother was born in the 1920s. And I said, you know, if in the 1920s, something like this happened in China, you would read about it in the newspapers a week or two after it happened. Yeah. Right. Major epidemic in China. And nobody would have thought anything of it except, oh, that's terrible. Mm -hmm. Or something like that. Right. Um, but now it's like, oh, my God. We have flights to China. Maybe it's going to come kill us all. Uh, so we have the information and we also have the transportation connectivity that gives people this fear that these things are going to rocket around the world and kill millions of people. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's it's just interesting. But this has added a lot of clarity. Thanks for you know sticking around for a little while. This is not a hard pill for me to swallow and maybe even not for a lot of listeners, but Many of our friends and family are already conditioned to think of us as fringe, conspiracy-minded people. Do you have any advice on how we should approach our skeptical friends and family with this information? We can give them your paper, but I don't know if that's going to do it. There's a lot of propaganda we're working against. Is there anything we can do to fight this all-encompassing narrative? Well, that's really all you can do is, is, is like read the paper and absorb a few of the major points. And if you're in a discussion, then you can contradict some of the ridiculous things that people say. Like somebody sent, you know, um, a viral article around today, and it, it was it was just like virological propaganda. It was it was full of false claims. Um, you know that we know that this social distancing is going to work, and w we know how many people get infected by every patient. I mean. That, that by itself doesn't really make any any sense that you would be able to put a number on the number of people who would be infected from uh, one person and a disease because the environment that you're in obviously makes uh, a, a big difference. Um, you know, how, how you interact with people 
I mean, is this person your lover, your children, employees, um, schoolmates? Like how you interact is very different. So you wouldn't expect it to be similar. But they've they come up with this number R zero. And and I think if there's if there's one group of people that we should just take out back and shoot, put them out of their misery, and that's the mathematical modelers. And and there was there's a paper in a, a journal called Stat by a guy named Ionides. Ionides is a mainstream, educated, high-profile critic of medicine, but he still is within the mainstream medical system. But he's criticized um, a lot of things, and he's criticizing this reaction based on highly unreliable numbers. So you get these mathematical modelers and they run some numbers and they say, wow, if R0 is 3.5 and we don't have social distancing, the entire population of America could be wiped out. Right? I mean, you can come up with anything you want in a mathematical model, but mathematical modelers tend not to think about the quality of their numbers. And in this case, like what's the death rate? You know, we, we know more about the number of people who are coronavirus positive who died. But first of all, we don't know that they all died of coronavirus. Like in Italy, you know, maybe 99% of them died of something else. So that divides your death rate by a factor of 100. That's pretty significant. And then there may be many, many more people who are coronavirus test positive who have no symptoms. Right. And that reduces the death rate as well. So what we have is these high death rates that are meaningless numbers. People throw them into a mathematical model, make a bunch of assumptions based on whatever they want to make assumptions on, and they come out with the most scary thing they want. Mm -hmm. and, and I see this with the press. Like if, if somebody tries to push back, maybe we're doing too much testing. Maybe most people would survive unscathed by this virus. If, if you try to sort of uh, sprinkle a little water on the flames, they just get really angry at you. They want it to be worse and worse and worse. Right. But they're going to be the only people left with jobs until they find out that there's nobody to pay them. Yes, and you're making great points. And outside of people who get tested and then die in the process of treatment, it's not like we're looking out and seeing people just drop dead. We're not seeing cars run off the road because the driver of it just died of corona flu like we're not dropping like flies so we should not panic and that's important to remember and outside of people engaging with the system there doesn't seem to be a lot of issues well another issue i think um you know we t you know i think one of the big arguments is i don't care about false positives throw a guy in quarantine for two weeks big deal well i've addressed some of those issues but another thing that we're doing is we're disinfecting everything well, disinfectants are chemicals that are not good for us. And uh, I, I read, you know, there's lots of articles on exposure to chemicals by children increases rates of asthma and childhood cancer and all kinds of other things. So we're now getting used to a, a situation where, you know, maybe the classroom gets sprayed with disinfectant every day, whereas maybe in the past it would get washed at the end of the term. And the floor would get washed once a day or something like that, right? So we're exposing ourselves and particularly our children to a lot more chemicals, which could have big consequences down the road. Mm -hmm. 
we're all rubbing uh, sanitizer on our hands. And, you know, it's mostly alcohol. Maybe that's relatively innocuous, but it has like perfumes in it and things like that that are probably not so innocuous. And it wouldn't matter if we did it once a month, but we're doing it 10, 20 times a day. Yes. So much Purell out there. It is scary. Yeah. Like what's it going to do to, um, you know, skin disorders? Um, and then breathing in all of these scents and all these chemicals, uh, how's that going to change the rate of other respiratory uh, diseases? Yes. And I know that we're wrapping this up, but I have the same thought about being quarantined for, say, 30 days where people are covering themselves in these chemicals. You're putting yourself in your hermetically sealed home. You're not getting sunlight. You're sitting only under artificial light. And the food you're eating that you're getting at the grocery store probably isn't the fresh produce because you're looking for that stuff that's going to last, which is all the corporate junk food. Now you're living on chips and then they come in with the test. And now, you know, your immune system's so low, you're testing positive, you're getting the treatment. I have a lot of concerns. Well, a funny thing, when it first was mostly in China, I was talking to a friend who lives in China in one of those large apartment blocks. And if you've never been to China, you just can't imagine <laughs> how big these things are. You, you know, like they, they go for an, a couple city blocks and then there may be 10 stories high. So there's a lot of, and they're, they're very small apartments. So everybody went home and they opened the windows because you can't survive in a Chinese apartment without the window being open because you've got the small area, you're cooking in it, you're sleeping in it. You know, if you close the windows within two days, it would be unlivable. So I said, so you have, you know, three apartments close to you beneath you, three apartments close to you above you, and you have one to the left and one to the right. And all of those people are coming to the window and they're breathing out and the droplets are coming into the air. But you're not allowed to walk on the street hmm. because you might pick up droplets. It's like if there's droplets of coronavirus, they're coming out of that person who's sick window and into yours. <laughs> so how could it be that they told you not to walk on the street and yet you're really close to people? You can't see them because they're in other apartments, but they're right next to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great points. And man, this has been really great. You've made me feel so much better in a lot of ways, worse than some others, but <laughs> it's all good. And uh, I really hope people check out your presentation, Rethink All Viruses. I hope they read your coronavirus paper. And I hope we can do this again sometime and talk more about virology versus environmental toxins and just the infectious disease theory overall and some of those older cases. Of course, now we have an immediate problem, but those older cases are also helpful for the overall theory. Right. Uh, HIV is a, is a great one that I know a lot about. Um, polio, uh, West Nile virus. I also studied mad cow disease, which is not viral, but is blamed on prions um, as well. Um, so I'd be happy to talk about any of those. And those all should be in my book, which one of these days I'll get finished. <laughs> awesome. And as for yourself, definitely tell people, give them your URL again and tell them about the podcast and what they need to know about getting more David Crow. Um, okay, so the podcast is called The Infectious Myth, and it's on prn.fm. So I believe the URL is um, uh, infectiousmyth.podbean.com. That's one way to get it. I also have a website, theinfectiousmyth.com.
And uh, on that website, you can get my coronavirus paper and you can get my SARS chapter. And there's there's some other information. And and when this is all over, I'll be moving on to make other chapters public. I've decided that there's really I'm never going to make money on a book like this. So I should, as a public service, make the chapters available as they're ready or even in draft form because I think the information is is really important. And and the feedback I'm getting from some scientists who I respect, who've never read my, say, SARS chapter before, is, is like, wow, this is um, an incredible amount of research, and I didn't know so many of these things. And just like with my coronavirus paper, I don't make claims uh, that don't have a reference. I certainly ask questions in places where we don't have enough information. But if I say, you know, there are people uh, who are coronavirus positive with no possible contact with other people, well, I I have the receipts. (laughs) Nice. And in terms of support, do you have a Patreon or anything like that? Uh, Yes. Infectious Smith on Patreon and LiberaPay. And uh, that would really help because... You know, if I could do this full time, my book would get written a lot quicker. And, um, you know, my radio show probably would be would be um, better. Like, for example, with this Chinese paper, um, I'm getting it translated by a friend. But I think, you know, if I had a Patreon campaign that gave me substantial amounts of money, I would have just paid the 18 cents per character that's necessary to get technical Chinese translated. But I can't afford to do that. Mm. I hear you, man. I hear you. We got to support the independent journalists out there. And even though these are troubled times, it's an important piece of the puzzle. You don't want to have just mainstream news sources. So, Lord, help us. Yes. I commend (laughs) what you're doing. And I hope people do reach out. I expect you to get a lot more interview requests after this. We have a decent following, but... Maybe when we're in less immediate times, we'll do this in the future. But until then, keep fighting the good fight. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate you helping spread the word. You got it, man. Take care. Well, how about that? Mm -mm -mm. Pretty, 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 pretty interesting. Like I said in the joint session and I think in my own coronavirus mini podcast the other day, that I'm following David Crow and John Rappaport on this. John's putting out stuff every day. Another name I heard, now I haven't digested it yet, but I'm hearing good things, similar things, about a Dr. Shiva Ayadurai. I'm probably butchering the name, but if you were to look up Dr. Shiva and Tinfoil Hat, you would find it, because people have been sending me this link. He's been on Tinfoil Hat with Sam Tripoli recently. And that is next on my list of things to check out. And even though David does go pretty hard on contagiousness and virus theory overall, he made a very important point in that his arguments for coronavirus and his paper on it, they don't hinge on his overall skepticism on, to use his term, the infectious myth, which also, come on, branding-wise, what a great double entendre. Touché, sir. But seriously, his coronavirus arguments are based on the coronavirus data and the details about the tests and the treatment. And because of that, as he said, even though he doesn't think there's an actual virus issue here, his paper does not hinge on that either. He can still make the same case about false positives, the non-binary tests, 
the riskiness of the medications, and the fact that we're looking at a component of RNA that might not relate to illness at all. Hence, so, so many asymptomatic people. So I do think this is really interesting, information-based, solid, logical reasoning. I don't really see what I could be missing here. But you also probably noticed this interview is about 90 minutes, about an hour and a half, a little longer, and it has no plus portion. Honestly, I could have stretched it and divided it up, but I didn't really want to do that with this topic and this material. I think it's worthy of a separate bonus show, and I wanted to make the full case because the stakes are so high, the panic is real, and we're doing all of this over a mild virus that some people might get, yet the economic impact is hitting almost everyone. I don't even know how many states have ordered restaurants and businesses to close at this point, but the people whose lives are threatened by this virus, even by the official numbers, does not compare to the people affected by these so-called safety measures. So no plus show today. I do think this is just too critical, and I just hope to win you over with the rest of the shows I do. And it's a bit scary, right? Because we're in the eye of the storm with this thing, and to confront it so directly, this is where people run into problems. Maybe we should have done a Bigfoot show. <laughs> but I'm going to keep from being too, too vocal, coming from this perspective in my unimportant and unnecessarily risky tweets. And I'm going to be careful how I title these episodes. And I also want to try to get people the information I think is worth hearing. And as Ross Ben said, just fly under the radar. I get a lot of messages from people who have been listening a long time. And they tend to say they're ride or die with me. <laughs> and I'm sometimes in awe of that dedication. But it is what keeps me sane when we do hit something that I get a little anxious over. Would you want to hit publish on this episode? <laughs> I don't know. It's sort of a trust thing. I bring people here to break down very controversial opinions as long as I can. And I trust that if I hit some sort of digital blockade, that you won't leave me hanging there. I don't want to talk too dramatically or in any sort of defeatist terms, but this seems like a tough argument to try and make right now, and we're bringing David Crow here to make it anyway. I hope you got something out of it. Big thanks to him for his time and commitment. Check out his podcast, The Infectious Myth. And his paper and previous presentation, Rethink All Viruses. Those two things will be in the show notes. Follow up with that stuff. Make up your own mind. The stakes are too high not to. Keep the conversation going. Don't let them shut us down for asking questions. Follow the data and keep an open mind. And maybe sign up for Plus if you're able. I want to be able to do this for a long time. TheHiresideChats.com. Love you guys. Thanks for listening. I'll see you on the other side. Your move, panic, propaganda pushers, technocratic takeover attempters, and agents of the big agenda. Your fucking me. Sweet dreams to the elite. We're calling them out on THC. Uncovering secrets and conspiracies. Everybody's looking for something. Some of them want to use you. Some of them want to get used by you Some of them want to abuse you